We are blessed this morning once again to have Chad Burrow come and bring the Word of God and proclaim it to us and exhort us from Psalm 116. And I'm very thankful uh, for how the Lord's been working in Chad's life. He is uh, in seminary through Knox Theological Seminary online, uh, which is a seminary uh, that was started by, uh, now I'm blanking on the name, D. James Kennedy. Thank you. (laughs) down there in Florida. And so we're excited how the Lord is working in his life and uh, he's brought the word before. And just so you know, uh, the plan is actually part of his education and one of the requirements of being under care as a candidate for ministry uh, in the Great Lakes Presbytery is to, to complete an internship. And so our hope and plan and desire is that we will start that this fall. So you'll probably see some more of Chad. Um, which is a good thing. It also means that he'll be making copies for us. No, I... <laughs> he will do more than that. So we're excited about that. Chad, uh, come and bring us the word. Well, with an introduction like that, um, <laughs> being ready to make copies, I- I'm okay with that too. So grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Suffering and death have always been a part of life. Most of us in our younger years tend to avoid thinking about it. In fact, if you look at our culture, we tend to try to shy away and hide images of our own mortality. We look at pictures coming out of Ukraine and war and we see the condition of humanity and we recoil at the violence, at death. But no matter what we try to do, death comes to all of us. There's a perfect one-to-one ratio between birth and death. We're not going to escape that final assize. In our psalm today, the psalmist suffers greatly to the point of death And he prays, and God answers his prayer and delivers him. And we can be thankful this morning that God does answer prayer. And we can rejoice with that this morning. God does wonderful, unimaginable things through prayer and through seeking his face. However, death still comes to us. There's still suffering. There's still evil. What are we to make of it? The psalmist helps us this morning to see a picture of that. To see a picture of thanksgiving to God for His deliverance, but also a trust and hope in God when that deliverance doesn't come in the way we would at least expect it to. It will ultimately come through a cup of salvation from Christ Himself. So read with me now Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. 
When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. And thanks be to God for this, his holy an infallible word to us this morning. Sooner or later, I must face the question in plain language, what reason have we except our own desperate wishes to believe that God is by any standard we can conceive good? Doesn't all the prima facie evidence suggest exactly the opposite? What have we to set against it? This is not a quote from an atheist this morning. This is a quote from one of the greatest Christian minds of the 20th century. C.S. Lewis, in his book titled A Grief Observed, dealt with the problem of pain and suffering in a real way. Not as some theoretical seminary project, but as something real when his wife passed away from cancer at a relatively young age. He questioned in that moment questions that many of us have, but frankly would never utter the way C.S. Lewis does, challenging the very goodness of God. In the face of all of the evidence in suffering and death, is God truly good? Who among us has not dealt with grief, suffering? It's a part of the human lot. For some of us, it's the death of a loved one, a parent, spouse, a child. Questions come up in those moments, and if they haven't come up for you at this point in your life, they will at some point. Questions like, does my life, does our life matter to God? Why do bad things happen to God's people? Does God care if I live or die? Why does God allow this evil and suffering? When darkness closes around us, when the dark night of the soul comes upon us, we have his true word to hold on to. And sometimes that's all there is. I don't believe we will ever fully understand the problem of evil and suffering and death, but we do get some relief and we do have hope through our faith. And Christianity, as I hope to show you this morning, is the only good, true hope because our lives are precious to God. They are valuable to Him. And no matter what comes in our life, God ultimately means it 
for good. The first thing we notice as we look directly at our psalm is that the psalmist loves God because he's heard his prayer. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Every indication of the psalmist's sickness is that it was a sickness leading to death. Yet in those moment, in that moment of greatest need, he called on the Lord and the Lord heard his call. This sickness that led to death, he says, is like a snare of death encompassing him. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me and I suffered distress and anguish. Sheol here is simply referring to the place of the dead, not to hell as it has sometimes been misunderstood. But the idea here is that these snares bound the psalmist, that there was anguish of soul that was not only physical but mental as his distress of death approaching surrounded him and ensnared him. It was in this state that the psalmist was delivered. And it is this amazing deliverance that even by verse 16, he's still praising God for loosing his, his bounds and these snares of death. The psalmist offers up a praise and prayer of thanksgiving to God who's delivered him. He called upon the, the Lord and Yahweh answered him. We should be like the psalmist this morning. In our moments of distress, in any moments in our life of concern, we should call on the Lord. The Apostle James reminds us that we have not because we ask not. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 reminds us to pray without ceasing. And in Philippians 4.6, he reminds us to not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is the pattern we see in Psalm 116, a psalm of thanksgiving because God answers prayer. The psalmist's major theme is thanksgiving and praise for a God who saves. From proclaiming his love because Yahweh has heard his cries, the psalmist goes on in thanksgiving and salvation. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple or the humble. When I was brought low, He saved me. God is gracious, righteous, merciful. As the psalmist was humbled, God heard His voice and saved him and richly blessed him. As we continue on, verses 8 and 9, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. In reform circles, we have a, a phrase to walk before the Lord, quorum Deo, to walk before the presence of the Lord. That's what we see here. The psalmist has said, Oh Lord, you have preserved me. You are keeping the tears from my eyes. You are keeping me from stumbling. Lord, you have heard my prayer. What an amazing testimony to the praise of God. And again, more specifically, His mercy in answering prayer. Let me remind you of a simple Bible doctrine this morning that is oh so glorious in a moment like this. And that is the immutability of God. And that's a big word that simply means that God doesn't change. That God's emotions don't 
flux. He is not for us one minute and against us the next. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 8, reminds us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When we cry out to Yahweh as His covenant children, He hears our voice. He still works in our lives. And the Bible is replete with example after example of God using our humble prayers to do mighty, mighty works. People may let us down as we read in verses 10 and 11, but God never will. Commentators struggle for the exact meaning. The Hebrew is a little bit difficult to understand here. Uh, And so there's a variety of opinions. But essentially, the crux of this is that the psalmist is going to listen to God and not the unwise counsel from those around him. God is true, and all men are liars. People let us down, but not God. I'm sure many of us can look back on specific times in our life where we see the hand of God moving in miraculous ways even, where he's answered prayer, where he's seen us or a loved one or or a friend through some difficult time, maybe sickness, like the psalmist here. God didn't let us down in those times. I hope that we all have that experience and have had that experience multiple times over. But there are those times where God is seemingly silent. He doesn't seem to be with us. He seems distant. And I wonder this morning if the psalmist ever felt that. Being human, I think he must have. In the midst of his pain and suffering, what did he feel? As he cried out to God in anguish, did he feel that God would answer his prayer? It's one thing to praise and extol God and his grace and his goodness when we're delivered. It is another when we suffer or death comes to our door. Sometimes those questions that C.S. Lewis posed come to us. Is God really good in the face of this evidence which suggests otherwise? How can we believe that God is good in this world in which we live? Some of our atheist and agnostic friends will challenge us. I want us to skip ahead for a moment. We'll come back and fill the the text in a bit. But for me, the heart of the text is in verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Your life as a saint of God is precious. Your life and even your death are in His hands and precious to Him. The word precious there is the Hebrew word yakar, which can also be translated costly or valuable. You are valuable to God, and we're going to see costly to Him. But you and I were worth the price. We see this idea repeated in other psalms and other parts of the Bible. If we look at Psalm 72.14, we see this sentiment. From oppression and violence, he redeemed their life, and precious or valuable and costly is their blood in his sight. Your blood, your life, 
everything about you is precious to God. Even though we sometimes doubt, it is this kind of truth that we must hold on to. It is this kind of truth that you and I are precious to God, that we're costly, we're valuable, we're worth something to Him. We are a treasured possession of Christ. This will help you in those dark nights. His Word says we are valuable and there is a purpose in suffering and evil. Romans 8.28 reminds us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. If ever I had a life verse, this one is it for me. That no matter what I face in life, if I am called according to His purpose, it all works for good. That word all is the same in Greek and in English. It's all working for good. Paul in Romans 8.28 reminds us that regardless of the circumstances, God is at work. To put it plainly and simply, even suffering and evil are somehow used by God in His great plan for us and for the world. It's a difficult truth to wrap our heads around. And in fact, many a pastor and many a preacher avoids the subject altogether. Entire theologies have been developed around the idea of getting rid of the idea of suffering and a God who would dare to use suffering to both chastise His children and to use it for their good. We see things like the prosperity gospel, often promoted through individuals like Joel Osteen and some other famous TV preachers, where the idea uh, is that you can have your best life now. That in some circles, if you sow enough seeds, i.e. money, to a certain ministry, you can reap a harvest, a great harvest, a blessing in your life. God does bless and God does answer prayer. But the prosperity gospel, as one of my professors put it, smells like smoke and is from the pit of hell. Because the Bible teaches that God uses suffering. He doesn't give us our best life now. The best is yet to come. Another famous TV preacher said, if your best life is now, think about where you're going in the next. The Bible shows us how God consistently works through pain and suffering. But to help us understand this, I want us not to just look at the Bible message this morning, but I want us to engage for a moment with the message of the world. How does the person without God and without Christ deal with the problem of evil, suffering, and pain? It's a worthy question that we're going to go down a rabbit trail this morning and think about. There are really, in my opinion, only about three different viewpoints. One is that of the atheist. The other, the sort of Eastern and New Age religions or the idea that God is somehow evil or twisted. Some would say, well, what about the impotent or powerless God idea? Well, if God is truly impotent and powerless, He is really no better than the God of the atheist because He's not active in our world and not active in our lives. So what do these different viewpoints have to teach us about the human experience, about life, about suffering and pain? First, 
Atheism, when followed to its logical conclusion, leads to a life that is utterly devoid of meaning and purpose and leads to a kind of relativism that there is neither good nor bad or evil. Suffering is purposeless purposeless and irrelevant. Many have seen this logic carried to its conclusion, the atheist's life without meaning, but fortunately, many of our atheist friends don't follow this logic to its conclusion. Most live relatively undisturbed lives that are inconsistent with their chosen belief. They found ways to rationalize values and morals, oftentimes with an evolutionary idea about human flourishing and what is good for humanity is an evolved principle and idea. Atheism is a religion insofar that it does have absolute truth claims. It claims that there is no God, and that is an absolute truth claim of a religious nature. If we choose this worldview over Christianity, where does it lead? One could ultimately look at the wars and the genocide of the 20th and now 21st century and say, this is one of the places it leads. I want us to focus on a couple of more contemporary examples, one from the recent past and one that is current. I want us to look at the Princeton ethics professor, Peter Singer, who mixes a unique version of atheism with utilitarianism, which is essentially what is good for the greatest number is good for humankind. We don't need to worry about that so much, but his views are startling. The other view I want us to look is that of the philosopher, the French existentialist philosopher, Albert Camus. First, Camus said this, recognizing that atheism leads to a kind of meaninglessness of life, he said, there is only one really serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. What does he mean by that? Camus means that reflecting on the logical consistency of an atheistic worldview, what keeps anybody from despair and killing themselves? Because our life is meaningless, according to Camus. And there's no expected meaning in death. And this he gives as the primary reason for not killing oneself, is we can't expect further meaning in death on the other side. Now, he rationalizes a great lie that we can come up with constructs to make our lives seem filled with meaning, but ultimately, atheism leads to death and a lack of meaning or value in human life. That is not what the Bible tells us this morning. Again, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Peter Singer has articulated since the 1970s, that the value of human life is no greater than the value of any other animal. When asked in an interview, and I quote here, if you had to save either a human being or a mouse from a fire with no time to save them both, wouldn't you save the human being? Singer responded, yes, in almost all cases, I would save the human being but not because the human being is a member of the species Homo sapiens. 
in general, it would be right to save the human and not the mouse from the burning building if one could not save both. But this depends on the qualities and characteristics that the human being has. If, for example, the human being had suffered brain damage so severe as to be in an irreversible state of unconsciousness, then it might be better to save the mouse than the human. This is a celebrated professor of ethics at Princeton. Are you more valuable than a mouse this morning? If you carry his logic to its final conclusion, a healthy Labrador retriever this morning has more value than if you are suffering, infirm, mentally or physically handicapped. Does this sound like a worldview that promotes human flourishing and is viable? Is it biblical? Absolutely not. We are created in the image of God. We are created with a purpose. We were created a little lower than the angels. We are created with meaning. That is the Bible's response, and we are precious in the sight of the Lord. What about Eastern religions? Again, I don't want to paint sort of a straw man here, but I do want to offer some summary points. Each of these Eastern religions, whether we speak of Hinduism or Buddhism, has a different worldview. It's a different form of practice. But ultimately, they lead to a place where pain and suffering are essentially an illusion. The practitioners seek to rise above the particulars of this life to a transcendent oneness. Meaning may be achieved through the gaining of wisdom with each reincarnation or other process, and ultimately, over time, transcendence of the world is the goal. Your pain and suffering in this life are an illusion to be overcome through gained wisdom and transcendence. Many of these religions have very complex systems and practices and are worth studying in and of themselves to understand how to speak to someone from this kind of approach. But ultimately, there's not much hope in this present life for a practitioner of such a religion because in the end, pain and suffering are not really even existing at all. It's something in your mind to transcend. The third option is that there is a God and He is immoral. In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis deals with this in a helpful way by contrasting a cosmic sadist view of God with a good God who uses pain and suffering. Lewis writes, The terrible thing is that a perfectly good God is in this manner, or excuse me, in this matter, hardly less formidable than a cosmic sadist. The more we believe that God hurts only to heal, the less we can believe that there is any use in begging for tenderness. A cruel man might be bribed, might grow tired of his vile sport, might have a temporary fit of mercy as alcoholics have fits of sobriety. But suppose that what you're up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting. If he yielded to your entreaties, if he stopped before the operation was complete, all the pain up to that point would have been useless. But is it credible that such extremities of torture should be necessary for us? Well, take your choice. The tortures occur, 
If they are unnecessary, then there is no God or a bad one. If there is a good God, then these tortures are necessary. For no even moderately good being could possibly inflict or permit them if they weren't. I agree with Lewis this morning. I love his image of the surgeon. Particularly in light of my own story. A couple of weeks ago, my father was rushed into emergency surgery and had a quadruple bypass. I've thought about C.S. Lewis in relation to that. If at any point the doctor had stopped his surgery, if at any point the doctor had said, no, let's not fix the problem completely, my father would still be in danger of a heart attack. The surgeon kept on cutting. The surgeon completed the task. And despite the very painful recovery that my father is going through, he's very thankful for the cutting of the surgeon. Remember today, Christian, that the one who began a good work in you will complete it. Sometimes that work comes with suffering and pain, but he will complete it. We have a lot to sing about with the psalmist this morning. In fact, I suggest we have even more. I cannot tell you in every circumstance why we suffer, but I can tell you that God does bring hope and good things out of suffering. And here I want to get very specific. I can point to an act of evil on the most unimaginable scale where God turned it into the greatest good. And God's motivation for using evil was His love for you and me. And if God can bring good out of the greatest of evils, He can redeem your pain and suffering this morning. Some 2,000 years ago, the most precious, costly death that ever occurred happened on a hill outside of Jerusalem. The only truly just, innocent man was crucified on a Roman cross. The most unspeakable evil that has ever occurred happened in the murder of the Son of God. And it was good. In commemorating that evil day, the church refers to that Friday as Good Friday. I'll say it again. If God can take something as evil as the crucifixion of His Son and turn it into good, we can trust Him and His Word. We are precious in His sight that our lives and our death is in His hand and we can trust Him. So go with me now for a moment as we consider the cross. Because the psalmist is going to tell us of a cup of salvation and to tell us and remind us to call on the name of the Lord. And I think at this moment it is helpful to, again, remember the cross. So who was responsible for the cross? Was it evil men? Was it Herod? Was it Pilate? In Acts 4, 27-28, Peter and John cleared this up for us. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand 
and your plan had predestined to take place. Did you catch that? Evil men were responsible for the death of Jesus. They freely chose to crucify Jesus. Evil men, Pontius Pilate, Jews, Gentiles, Herod, were responsible for the death of Jesus. However, it was all done according to the counsel and the plan that had been predestined by Almighty God. God stood behind the crucifixion of Jesus sovereignly, and the most unimaginable evil was translated into good for His people. God brought about the most amazing, marvelous, wonderful thing. That song, the hymn we sang, Grace, Grace, God's Grace, that is all that we can say in response to this. How marvelous that salvation is which comes through Christ when God made that evil, awful Friday good. Your life has meaning this morning because God gave it meaning at creation and continues to bless and give meaning to our lives through the cross and through Jesus Christ. You are His treasured possession, and if you doubt that, remember the cost. And think about verse 15 of Psalm 116 again. Costly in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Valuable, precious. I want to draw your attention now for a moment to Romans 8, 16 and 17. Here's another way of thinking about suffering in this life that I think is a truth that we can hold on to. First of all, God is never going to let us go. And even in those darkest moments when we feel we are lost, He is still there. Paul says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Our suffering in this life is connected to our identity in Christ and to our ultimate glorification. We already know this. If we celebrate Easter, we know that God brings something good out of evil. That's why we can say with Paul, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? Hold on to this truth of who God is and who you are in Christ and that great salvation that He offers us all this morning. Now, it wouldn't be a a good sermon if we didn't have at least one quote from the Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia. So, I'm going to vary it up a bit. I've been doing Chronicles of Narnia recently. So, we'll go with Lord of the Rings. In fact, I'm not so sure that this quote hasn't been used from this very pulpit by uh, Pastor Jeremy, but it's worth repeating in this context. Following the climax of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Sam Gamgee finds out that his friend Gandalf was not killed by the Balrog. However you say that, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. So Sam exclaims, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? 
because of Easter, because of God's plan of salvation, because of the fact that God takes and works great good from evil sources, we can say yes. Everything sad is going to become untrue. Tim Keller supports this line of thinking in his book, The Reason for God, where he adds, everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. God redeems our pain and suffering this morning. Someday, if not in this lifetime, we will see that God's plan was the right one. C.S. Lewis again sums it up on a much more positive note than earlier. They say of some temporal suffering, no further bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even the agony into a glory. What an amazing love. I'm just suddenly reminded of the hymn writer who wrote, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? What an extraordinary gospel we have that brings meaning out of suffering. Let's look back to our Psalms for a moment and see what the appropriate response is to this grace. Look with me at verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. give honor, thanksgiving, and praise, to give glory to our Savior. That is what we do. And notice here, there's essentially word and sacrament. The cup of salvation being exalted with calling on the name of the Lord. Much could be said of this. Some might say, well, how do you get that? Jesus hasn't even been crucified yet. The God who is behind shadowing the authors of this text knows the beginning and the end of the story. There are many cups and the metaphor of a cup used throughout the Bible. And this cup of salvation is what is offered to us by Christ this morning. It's a cup of salvation that we see on the table. It's a cup of salvation that cost everything to God, to Christ It's what we celebrate in the table. In fact, is Christ taking this evil and horrible thing and remembering it and remembering that it was for our good where God worked evil and suffering and death for our good and His glory. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and we follow Him and we meet Him at the table and this is good news. If you're outside of Christ this morning... Not only is the table not for you this morning, but neither are these blessings. But they can be. You see, the psalmist was calling on a God that he believed in, that he was in covenant with. Because of belief in Christ, because we can come to Him as His children and seek His grace and mercy, our lives can have meaning. There is no promise for suffering being turned good outside of Christ. Call on Him in faith this morning, trusting in Him. Come to Him as your Lord and your Savior. And I can't promise the rest of your life will be 
Roses, I can't promise that it will always go well, but I can promise that your life will have meaning and that even the worst thing that could happen to your life will be used by God for good. That I can declare this morning from His Word. The Lord tells us to taste and see that He is good. Claim His promises this morning. Come to Him in faith so that your life will be filled with meaning and you will know and you will have that assurance of your salvation and the meaning of your life. Remember that Easter morning when all that was sad became untrue. That great cup of salvation is extended to all of us this morning. It's a wondrous gift. It's a wondrous gift that brings nothing but praise from His children. I can do no better than just finish by reading the psalm to you. Read with me again from verse 16. This is our sacrifice to the one who saves us and makes all things right. Verse 16, O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in the midst of, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. God still answers prayer. God has purpose in suffering. And ultimately, He extends to each of us the cup of salvation. Amen.